Ah, yes, he is. Got some amazing guests waiting in the wings as well, too. But if you have that gardening question, we're going to give you that opportunity throughout the hour to phone in as well. But let me just tell you, we'd like to start off by always making your morning. And let's do it again with that Sorgles gift certificate worth $25 if you are the 10th caller at 412-922-1020. You win it. But a busy day with Mr. Oster, so... Let's say good morning. Hi, Doug. Hey, how we doing? Uh, cold start to the morning, that's for sure. Rob's sitting here rubbing his hands together, blowing into his hands and freezing, and yeah, you'll be okay. You got sweater. Looks, what is that, a sweater or is that a sweatshirt? It's kind of like a blanket slash sweatshirt. <laughs> yeah, it's a blanket. Okay. Right. Uh, we've got two great guests today. Christopher Sheridan is the flower sommelier. We're going to have fun with him. And our old friend Steve Rapaski is here. Just returned from Kenya, where he was providing outreach for beekeepers there. And that cold start to the morning, we will get a good look today when things thaw out to see. Number one thing I'm looking at is early daffodils that sprouted, and we'll see if those buds were got uh, uh, blasted, we call it, when it gets cold like this. And since we have two guests today, if you have a garden question, uh, get in here at the very top of the show right now, 866-391-1020, or you're going to have to wait until about 745 I just had four seats open up for my May trip to Croatia on the private yacht. It's been sold out for a year, but there was a cancellation. If you have any interest in going to Croatia in May on that boat with me, go to DougOster.com and sign up right now. Just get on the list so that you you could go uh, because it's going to be crazy. People are going to want to go. Uh, I have started a free newsletter it's got lots of tips and tricks, stories, ideas, jokes, and much more. You can have a lot of fun there. I'm doing a lot of talking back and forth with people there. I enjoy doing it. We're in uh, episode, or not episode, what would it be? Uh, at number four, anyway. <laughs> and I actually finally got all my bulb- bulbs planted before the ground froze, uh, and they're from a company called Easy to Grow. And they are not paying me to talk about this. This is not an ad, but... Their bulbs were awesome. I mean, top quality. When we talk about planting daffodils, you know, I was way late planting these, but I bought them late. They were on sale. It's okay. They were out in the cold, and they'll be fine. But we talk about noses. And so when there's one nose, which just means one little, you know, pointed part on the bulb, means one flower. Some of these had three and four noses, which means three or four different blooms. They send me emails all the time, and they've got a lot of stuff on sale right now, not just, you know, spring bulbs, but all sorts of other stuff. I put a a, a link up on my uh, website, and uh, you can take a look at what's on sale there if you're, you know, cheap like me. Uh, That Easy to Grow, they helped me two years ago with Andy Anrime when we were planting bulbs late, late, late into the season for the South Park Theater. And I have started another year of garden consults where I come to your garden and spend an hour or two with you trying to help you create something better. I just did one Friday. We had a lot of fun out there. And um, just take a look at the website. And my free weekly classes continue Thursdays at 5 p.m. for Farm to Table by Fresh by Local. This week it's all about trees Shrubs and Perennials, How to Make Them Thrive, and some of my all-time favorites. We're having fun there, too. That's really interactive. People come on Thursdays at 5 o'clock online, and we chat back and forth through that chat function and definitely have a lot of fun. And we did have a guest here a couple weeks ago, uh, Dr. Manon Galligly. He's the 100-year-old plant pathologist from 
WVU. He turns 101 in April. And we talked all about these tomatoes that he has created, uh, four different disease-resistant tomatoes, and his last, uh, the, the last one that he just introduced. Well, I wrote a, a full story about him. Uh, it's uh, my, for, my, for Pittsburgh Earth Day. So that's up on the site, too. And then I've got a little uh, thing in there, how to start tomatoes from seed. Um, you know, this is the time we start thinking about that, about starting from seed, about getting our seeds together, about getting a lighting system if you want to do it that way. That's the way, you know, for all these years, 40 years, I've been starting my tomatoes and other plants. But I guess tomatoes and peppers are the first ones. And we're still a little early. You know, you don't want to get going too early. I've had lots of people asking me questions online, you know, through DougOster.com. Hey, uh, can I get things started now? little early, you might be able to get away with some small seeds, you know, impatience, begonias, stuff like that. It takes a, a long time for them to come to fruition and, and get big enough. But the number one thing you need for starting seeds, and I talked about this in the last, uh, last week's class I did, uh, the, the Thursday classes, is some kind of light source. And, you know, an LED light source. And again, you know, mine came from Andy Anrime down at uh, EV True Value. And it's just this little strip of LED lights and it's magnetized. And I, you know, went and bought a an old metal cabinet from Construction Junction. I just stuck the lights to the bottom or to the top of the thing. And, you know, it's got a little cord in there. And it just, that bright light gives you the the big, thick, hardy plants. When you, people always tell me, I started my seeds, they got kind of tall and spindly, and then they fell over, and they're trying to do it on the windowsill, which can be done. If you have a big, bright, south-facing window, yes, sometimes you can get away with it, but if you get a gray start to the year, uh, the the plants just don't get the light they want. Uh, So getting that good light source and then, you're, you know, a container with drainage. It could be anything. I just saved the six-packs from last year's flowers from the flats, and I've got hundreds of them, you know, sitting. And again, I've got the advantage of having a unheated greenhouse, although my unheated greenhouse is missing lots of panes of glass. <laughs> I'm hoping uh, a friend of mine that I know that works on greenhouses can take time away from the all the commercial work he has to do to come and throw a few panes in mine because it's too high up for me to get, and I just I picture myself crashing through that that glass. But I got the advantage of having that greenhouse. You know, I I do you because it's unheated. I do have to start like your my tomatoes and my peppers and other really warm weather crops inside, and can't get them out in there until about April fifteen. Even then, sometimes it gets too cold. And actually, it was the reverse last year. We had such a a warm early spring that it burned up plants that I had in the greenhouse. But anyway, you find a container that's got uh, some good drainage. You fill it up with a planting mix, not garden soil, not compost, but you just buy a bag of planting mix at the local nursery, one of our sponsors. And the trick is to get it the right moisture. And so, you know, you get it in a separate like container, you add some water, you mix it up, and when you squeeze it together, and this is the important part. You want it to stick together, but you don't want it to drip. And so that makes it perfect. You, you lay that into that container. You sprinkle those, whatever, tomato, pepper, whatever it is, marigold, whatever you want to grow, tomato seeds or seeds on there. Put a little bit more of that moist mix on top of that. And then cover the whole thing with clear plastic. Sometimes you can buy like flats that have like a nice dome you put on there. I use 
old dry cleaner bags, save them throughout the years. And that keeps that soil moist and keeps those seeds moist until it's time for them to sprout. You know, we keep them in a relatively warm area inside, 65, 75 degrees if you can get it. Under that light, you want that bright light on there. And as soon as they sprout, we get that plastic off so they have a chance at the top of that soil to dry out. And then we're off to the races, start fertilizing in a couple of weeks, about half strength. You know, I talk about this fertilizer I use all the time. It's called Dramatic, and uh, it's from the company, the DRAM, D-R-A-M-M, D-R-A-M-M. And, and again, that's not an ad. I buy it just like you buy it, and it's just the stuff I use. But there's lots of different organic liquid concentrates where, again, you're spending 10, 15 bucks. You're getting a, something you're going to mix up with. You know, one tablespoon in a gallon of water and two tablespoons in a gallon, whatever the mix is, and then you're good to go. And you start fertilizing half strength. You know, you get four weeks in, you go to full strength, you know, once a week. But then the trick is getting them under those lights out into the garden. We need to have some time where they get adjusted. Not as bad coming out of the greenhouse, but it still needs this what we call hardening off period. And so we do start to reduce watering, reduce fertilization. If it's coming right out from the basement under lights, you take them out, put them in the shade for a couple hours, let them, you know, feel the breeze, then you bring them back in for the night for about seven days, back and forth, till finally they're out there all night on their own. They're toughened up, you know, especially with the breeze going. Because like with a, something like a tomato, if you throw it right out into the garden from being under lights, it's not going to kill it, but it's going to set it back two weeks. It's going to get kind of a uh, uh, sunburn and such. So do that hardening off, and then they're ready to be planted, and you're going to have a great garden as always. Tell them who's coming up. It's Chris Christopher Sheridan. He is the flower sommelier. We're just going to have some fun with that. Fragrance, fragrance, fragrance. We'll be back. Hey, thank you again, Pittsburgh, for your generosity supporting the KDK Radio Warmathon presented by MediConnect, benefiting Dollar Energy Fund. This year, we were able to raise $158,958, which helps 441 local families. Thanks to your donations brought to you by Bill Few Associates, Allegiant Community Federal Credit Union, Julian Gray Associates, Levin Furniture, Phil DeLacenti and Associates, and Levin Furniture. Our guest this morning is Christopher Sheridan. He is the flower sommelier. We met at the Mid-Atlantic Nursery Trade Show in Baltimore in January. We had a nice talk, and I thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about what a flower sommelier is. Christopher, how did that get started for you? Well, there's a, a couple aspects to this. Uh, the first one uh, is that uh, before I got into uh, plants, I actually worked in a wine shop. I was never a certified sommelier, but I, wor- I writ- wrote uh, you know, hundreds of tasting notes you know, describing the wine. And that kind of uh, that gave me the idea. And then I also specialize in fragrant plants, which I think is something that isn't as appreciated as it probably should be. So, um, so that was kind of the theme, but also uh, people outside the garden writing industry might not know that a lot of us have names like rappers and rock stars. We've got Mr. Plant Geek, the gardener, garden lady, and the impatient gardener, and so on. And I, Doug knows all of them. And we also party like them. So, uh, so I figured coming up with something fun and playful uh, would get people's attention. Well, on the website, I love this. It says, scent is the soul of the garden. So let's talk a little bit about fragrance. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I really, I love that. And, and I, I really do believe that. And I don't think I came up with that. I mean, I read a lot of uh, classic gardening literature. I've gone back 100, 150 years. So uh, I can't take credit for it. But, you know, the soul, it is, it's invisible. It's, but it's there. It's present. You know, it, it evokes strong feelings in us. Uh, so I think that that's really, um, you know, the way we ought to look at it is a garden without fragrance is a garden without soul. And we have the color wheel for all the colors. You talk about a classification system possibly for aromas. Yeah, there, there are a number of systems in existence, but we don't have one that's, uh, you know, kind of universally used. And I think, you know, the point I like to make is, you know, the color wheel, we all talk the same language. We have botanical Latin, you know, which everybody in the world knows what a plant it, it's the same plant when using a botanical Latin, plant morphology, you know, chordate means heart-shaped everywhere when you're describing leaves. And so, yes, I think it's, if we can get, get to more of, uh, so all of those things enable us to communicate with each other you know, effectively. And we need, you know, whether we're using one of the existing systems or we come up with a new one, we need, uh, you know, a shared language to classify plants, uh, both for arranging them in the gardens and arranging them in the vase. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if you would like, I, I can touch on you know, one of the systems, just give a real quick rundown. Sure, uh, sure. It, sure. So um, Wilson and Bell wrote The Fragrant Year in 1967, and it's a really beautiful book. It's something you can get online uh, on used book sites. And, uh, and their system, um, just uh, real quickly, is uh, balsamic would be lavender and mints and many other things. You know, these are just examples. They have spicy as the second category, and examples would be the carnation and the fennel. Uh, heavy would be lily and jasmine, like a lot of our tropical plants are heavy. Uh, sweet, uh, honeysuckle in the uh, fringe tree. Honeyed, um, crabapple and musk roses. Uh, fruited, we have the grape hyacinth, and we have you know, magnolia. We have a whole range of fruit scents within the magnolias. Uh, you know, violated sweet violets themselves, as well as um, the Siberian crabapple and a couple other things. Uh, roses, you have roses, and a lot of uh, some of the peonies have a rose scent, and then you have rose scented geranium is a, a fragrant foliage that evokes roses. And then some things are just unique. There's no, you know, it just it is what it is. And so examples of that would be lily of the valley, sweet peas lilac and wisteria and it's okay to say something smells like wisteria you know you don't necessarily have to come up with a different description of it you know you can compare uh, one flower to another and and that's another way of uh, communicating with each other when you think lily of the valley is it just a unique scent to you because i guess it is to me i didn't even think of that i love the scent of lily of the valley and i guess it is its own thing huh yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I definitely believe, you know, that's the case. And it's it's also it's spring. So, you know, you have you have the um, I think you have the emotional attachment to scent. So you have, you know, what are the chemical components of the scent? But then you just, you know, it could be home. It could be uh, some scents take us to exotic places. Other scents remind us of our grandparents and their gardens. So it's, it's really powerful. But, yeah, the unique uh, like I said, yeah, and, and a lot of these things, you know, you may put something in heavy, I may put it in honey. Like, this is not a strict system for people. This is, a, you know, what works best for you as an individual gardener or flower lover. And you're going to be at the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Flower Show on March 10th, right? Tell me a little bit about what you're going to be talking about there. Well, I'm really looking forward to this because, you know, as a Philadelphia kid, it's uh, – you know, being at the flower show is really tremendous. It's almost like being a violin player and getting <laughs> to play with your local orchestra. So I'm really pleased with that. And uh, 
So the way I generally teach fragrance is we start out with the language of fragrance. I want people to have a, you know, kind of a vocabulary of it. And so, you know, we use, uh, go over some descriptive terms uh, for scent. And it's kind of like wine tasting, but not quite as crazy because, you know, wine, they have burnt rubber and bacon and, and other things. We might not be even flowers. And then, you know, some of the botanical Latin gives you clues uh, like odorata or fragrantissima or, uh, you know, there, there's different um, in, in the Latin description of a plant, you know, so it's good to know that helps you when you're buying seeds or buying plants. And then some common names like winter sweet, uh, you know, uh, honeysuckle, like you can think of all the different names that really uh, help take you there. So we look at the language of fragrance, and then I go over one or two classification systems um, just to let people know, you know, you know how, how different folks have looked at it over time. So we'll do Wilson and Bell, and we'll also do one by um, Stephen Lacey, who he came up with eight categories for foliage. Uh, so that's another thing that I think when Wilson and Bell were writing in the 60s, flower arrangements were flower arrangements. I don't know that there was as much greenery as we use now, like especially with our emphasis on native plants. And I always went through the currently blooming, you know, what's what's in bloom, uh, you know, when I'm doing the presentation. And then also, how do we cite and enjoy fragrant plants, you know, in both the garden and in the home? So that's that's kind of the backbone of what we'll be talking about on March 10th. Got a couple minutes left. What is a tussie mussy? Okay, so tussie mussy, probably better known as a posy. It was something that was used, uh, and also a nosegay, in, in the uh, 19th century and before, uh, because the streets, I mean, there was no sewage. There was no, or there was a lot of sewage for no sewers. So, uh, so yeah, so people needed something as they were moving through town, even London, Philadelphia, that, that you know, something pleasant to get them from point A to point B uh, because of the odors of that era. But, you know, that's no longer necessary. But now, uh, it, so Nosegay was part of it, but also the Victorian language of flowers, because people couldn't be as expressive in that culture, they, the flowers would all have meanings. Uh, so you, it could be a romantic thing. It could be something to your friend, you know. Um, so just an example, like you have the snowdrop and glanthus, which are in season now, means consolation or hope. Uh, crocus in the in the language of flowers, which these are a lot of the ingredients of a, of a tussie, uh, cheerfulness or glee. Uh, ironically, you know, obviously we know rose means love, olive means peace, but basil means hate. So whoever came up with that must never have tried a good pesto. All right, Chris, we're just about out of time. Christopher Sheridan is the flower sommelier. You can find out all about him by going to DougOster.com. I've got links to everything he's doing there, speaking at the Philadelphia Flower Show, then at Longwood Gardens. Uh, great stuff, Christopher. Thanks for getting up so early with us. Okay, thanks, Doug. I really appreciate uh, the chance to visit. Great to talk. What's coming up after the news? Oh, it's our old friend Steve Rapaski, just back from Kenya, where he was helping out beekeepers in that country. And we're going to talk all about what he was doing there. Worldwide traveler Steve Rapaski coming up with Doug, plus that opportunity to win that Janowski's gift certificate right after we check the news. Three minutes away with Rob Taylor today on KDKA. All right, let's make it the 10th caller, as always, to win that uh, Janoski's gift certificate. And the number to dial is 412-922-1020. We are back with the organic gardener himself, and that world traveler has decided to give us the buzz on why he was in Kenya. So go ahead, Doug. Our old friend Steve Rapaski just got back from Kenya, where he's providing outreach for beekeepers there. Steve, uh, thanks for getting up early. Tell me about how this all got started. I know this isn't your first trip to Kenya. Yeah, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, yeah, it's actually my fourth trip. Uh, we It all started back in 2018. 
uh, with a good friend of mine who was an extension uh, educator for Penn State. She's now retired, Marianne Frazier. Um, she had been doing some research over there, and we had been bugging her about taking us over to see Kenya and see the beekeepers that she had been visiting with for years prior to that. And we finally did it in 2018. And unbeknownst to all of us, that turned into many, many close friendships and relationships with a lot of uh, beekeepers over there and schools. And here we are, uh, you know, eight, five years later, six years later, um, four trips, and uh, we're continuing our outreach and education and friendships with our beekeepers over there. So what kind of things are you working on over there? And are the bees similar to the bees here? Yeah, so they're definitely, they're honeybees. Um, unlike our European honeybees that we use here, uh, which are docile and friendly, they have the true African bees over there, which are quite aggressive and defensive. Uh, so we have to take a lot of precautions. We have to wear a lot more protective gear than we normally would here. Uh, but ultimately, you know, many of the beekeepers that we visit over there are in very remote villages. So electric is minimal if it existent at all. Uh, access to wood is very difficult uh, because the land has been stripped of, of trees years and years and years ago. And just the climate itself has is very different. And ultimately, what we're working on is trying to get these beekeepers to learn some of the Western ways, so to speak, but do it in ways that are um, easier for them, right? So money is, is hard to come by over there. Wood is hard to come by. So things as simple as utilizing the wax that they have from when they harvest honey, it's a throwaway product. So they harvest the honey, they crush and strain, and they throw the wax away because it's a waste product. And because of the many missionaries that have been there for years and years and years, there's a lot of churches. And we're trying to get ways um, to beekeepers to utilize that wax, to make candles, to sell as an additional product, which will increase their revenue, which in the long term helps with uh, taking their kids to school. Um, school is very expensive for uh, the Kenyans over there in the villages. And we're just trying to find ways that will be useful um, to provide more income for them. What is the hive like that they're using then, you know, if, if wood is hard to come by, how do, is, are they yeah. just finding it in the wild and, and harvesting it that way, or, or are they making areas for the bees? They're actually utilizing a log hive. So there, there are trees there in Kenya. However, they're few and far between, and they're very selective. They find old, dead trees. They're not harvesting new stuff. But they're finding these old dead trees, hollowing, hollowing the logs out, and then hanging them horizontally from these trees. Now, we've introduced, we meaning the Western world, have introduced uh, the, the Langstroth hive, which is what we use here um, in the United States very commonly. Those square boxes. There's also what they call the top bar hive. But some of the research uh, Marianne Fraser has done uh, over there from Penn State years ago they found that uh, the, the bees over there and the beekeepers prefer to use the old traditional log hives over the more modern top, bi top bar and Langstroth hives. So we're finding and allowing them to utilize their old traditional ways, but giving them ways to modernize their beekeeping industry, so to speak. Um, and it's quite interesting. So they, they basically... The, the beekeeping over there isn't as sustainable. Um, the bees are migratory. They leave during the dry season. They come back in the wet season. Uh, and it adds a lot of challenges to uh, the beekeepers there, unlike many of the challenges that we have here. When you go, do you go to the same places every time in Kenya, or do you visit different places? 
So as a tourist, we visit some of the other areas. We've primarily been in the southern areas of Kenya, the Masai Mara, um, the southwest. We've done, you know, Nairobi, south of Nairobi, and then east to the coast. But the beekeepers have remained the same over the last several years. Uh, Mama Kasika is one of our favorite beekeepers. She's in her 50s, and she's a quote-unquote commercial beekeeper over there, runs about 200 colonies. Um, our good friend Mulwa is a, a remote villager beekeeper. He makes his own log hives. Uh, he's widowed, and uh, his wife died at a very young age, but he had six young boys who he's trying to get through school, and we've been working with him. And we work with some of the, the universities over there, Southeastern Kenyan University and ISIPI are uh, two of the universities we continue to maintain a relationship with uh, to assist beekeepers all over, not just the few that we actually visit. You know, the honey we have here, we, we see different seasonal honeys. Is it m- much different than the honey they're harvesting there? Very much, very much so. Obviously, you know, we have 300 varieties here in the United States. Over there, they have some similar, like acacia, which is similar to our black locust. Uh, it's a very popular honey. They have what they call their wildflower honey, which when the rains come, uh, the flowers bloom, and they just feed on a variety of flowers. Um, I grabbed a jug, or jug, I should say a jar of honey. The chief of a Maasai Mara tribe that we visited ended up, he turned out he was a beekeeper, and we exchanged honey. And the honey he gave me is from an aloe plant, and it is delicious. It's it's somewhat tart, very sweet, uh, just a, a very unique flavor. But, yeah, the honey... Honey is delicious. It's a commodity over there, and um, they pay a, a pretty penny because that's their sweets. They don't really have sugar, so to speak. Um, the honey is what they use to sweeten their their tea or drinks or whatever it is they use, not to mention the medical uses over there. Uh, what kind of harvest do they get as far as quantity compared to, like, a, a, a standard hive you'd use here? Yeah, so one of our hives here can harvest about approximately 60 pounds uh, twice a year, so about 100 to 120 pounds in this part of Pennsylvania. Over there in Kenya, they're talking 25 to 30 pounds is a big harvest, and that's a huge harvest for them. Uh, Some of the bigger beekeepers might get upwards of 1,000 pounds, uh, 1,000 kilos, Uh, but many of the small-time villagers, you know, 30 to 60 pounds every other year is a substantial harvest for them. We're talking to Steve Rapaski from Bee Control and Meadow Sweet Apiaries. He just came back from Kenya where he's helping beekeepers there. Steve, talk a little bit about what you get out of this, why you do this. You know, my first trip to Kenya was more of a curiosity and just to kind of see what's what. And, of course, my my background is wildlife biology, and, and I'm very interested in the science behind things. But after that first trip, there's something about Kenya that you fall in love with, and after four trips, and, and many of us there at the same time over those four trips, we still can't put a finger on it. But the people, it, it's a it's a impoverished country, third world country. Nobody has any money. Um, they they work, you know, hand to mouth um, to feed themselves, and yet everybody is so happy. They have a smile on their face. They're happy to see you. They're happy to talk to you, share stories, share common bonds, and the relationships that we've built over those past several trips is just unbelievable. And on top of that, you know, some of it, were the outreach and extension that we're doing, we're, we're providing funding for some of these students uh, in these remote villages. For $250, you could put a student through school for, for a year. And it's, for us, that seems nothing. For them, that's a lifetime of work. So 
we're we're able to watch these kids grow up and go to college or university and then see where they go from there. So there's so much that that draws us to Kenya, and I think first and foremost is the relationships that we build, and then now it's followed by just the adventure of of seeing the bees, working with the bees, seeing some of the the safari animals, you know, the big five, the rhinos and the elephants and stuff like that. It's just it's fascinating, and I certainly would recommend if anybody has an opportunity to go to Kenya just to visit people to take take that trip because the the people are wonderful, the food is fabulous, and the country is just amazing. Where can people see some of these pictures that you shoot? Because you shoot some amazing pictures in Kenya. Yeah, you know, I, I need to be better at posting some of that on, on Facebook at Meadowsweet Apiaries. Um, I'll probably I'm working on a page on my website, so Meadowsweet Apiaries or MeadowsweetBees.com. I'll probably put some pictures up there, just list it under Kenya and just show some of the stuff that we do. And it's just it's amazing. I mean, you look back on some of these pictures, and I've been editing here for a few days, anyways, and. It's hard to believe that I was there, and that I was there for the fourth time, and every time I see something different, and my love for that country and the people just grows immensely after every trip. Well, I'm lucky. I get to sit with Steve with his laptop and see all the pictures so uh, and hear some stories about Kenya. Well, Steve, thanks so much for filling us in on what you're doing. That's Steve Rapaski from Meadowsweet Apiaries and Bee Control. And, Steve, we will talk to you soon. All right, we'll be back. If you have a call, you want to get it in here to Doug, start dialing 866-391-1020. Next hour, in the kitchen, the Coons cooking our meatless meals as we celebrate the Lenten season on KDKA. All right, let's get back to Doug. Come news and notes to wrap it up, and then it'll be time for... In the kitchen with that Coons Cooking Hour today, meatless meals, the Lenten season is a topic of conversation. Doug? If you have a question, give me a call, 866-391-1020. But I do have some questions from listeners that I got over the week. And Deborah says, the first two times I planted beets, I had a good crop. But since then, they've been very sparse and don't seem to grow. What am I doing wrong? And <laughs> Wrong is in caps. <laughs> Well, there's nothing that you're doing wrong. It's just uh, when we see root crops like beets and they're not heading up, it's usually fertility and or pH issues. I would recommend in that case getting a soil test from the Penn State Cooperative Extension, figuring out what that pH is, and I'm, I'm guessing it's probably a pH problem, which it takes time to amend, but it could be done. And the other thing would be, you know, that we, you know, I'm a broken record, but Compost, compost, compost. We know compost is pH neutral. We grow in that compost, and we're going to give that plant everything it needs. Uh, my friend Lou says, I listen to your show all the time. I have a question about planting clover seed in soil. Mushroom manure or compost? I already have a yard of clover instead of grass, my preference. I have some several large patches that require replanting, approximately 10 by 20 feet each. What would you suggest? And how about a weed killer that will not harm the clover? It's growing Dutch white. Well, that's pretty cool. Have a lawn of clover. Good for the bees, and I'm sure it's organic. And so the first thing, whenever you're planting new seed, mushroom manure is okay, but it can have uh, it can be alkaline. And so we want to watch the pH on that. I prefer compost. If you can find straight compost from either a, a good nursery, you know, a big bulk supplier, depending on how much you need, uh, that compost is, is going to be a great thing to start those seeds with. For the weed killer, organically, there's a couple different ways we can do this. Um, so I love this stuff called corn gluten meal. 
And it's used a lot in lawns. And so it's applied right when the forsythia blooms, so probably next month. And we do it that way because that's our indicator that's right before the crabgrass sprouts. You know, crabgrass is an annual weed. So how corn gluten works, and we talk about it all the time here on the show, is it stops seeds from completing the germination process. That means all seeds, not just weed seeds. And so in the case of the clover, we would either plant the clover first. Once it sprouts, if it sprouts before those weeds, we can put the corn gluten meal on if the clover isn't going to sprout till after the weeds, we would put the corn gluten meal on first, and then we'd have to wait six to eight weeks until the corn gluten meal isn't effective anymore, and then we would plant our, our seeds for the, uh, for the clover. And there are other, like, spot-treating uh, organic sprays you can use. One's called Avenger. One's called, um, what's it called, from Whitney Farms? Lawn weed killer, uh, but you have to look at the ingredients. You know, you, you if you're going to be organic and you're not going to reach for chemicals, you know, things like clove oil uh, are are one of the things that that people that they use. You know, high doses of vinegar, uh, much much stronger than what we could get, you know, from the store. So it's good stuff. So just use uh, some kind of organic herbicide to deal with with the weeds, and you'll be fine. Are you getting excited for gardening? Because I am, even when it's cold like this. Uh, today, I'm gonna. I'm really interested to see when we get the uh, nice uh, thaw later on today. I want to see what those daffodils look like because I've got these daffodils that always come up too early. They're right next to the house. You know, they get that warmth from the brick in the house, and we will see. Hopefully, that you know they've bloomed every year, no, ma- no matter what. So we'll see what happens. They might get bud blessed. Now. Clean up those two tools, oil them, sharpen them, get that lawnmower blade sharpened, get that tuned up. If you've never taken a lawnmower blade off, be, be careful, be safe, be sure that lawnmower can't start. You know, a sharp shovel, a sharp hoe, um, you know, there's all sorts of tools out there, files and different types of tools that you can get at the hardware store. Sharpen that stuff up for the wooden handles, you know, some boiled linseed oil on there so to keep them supple uh, and Gives you something to do before we can get started. If you're lucky enough to have snowdrops blooming like I am, I, again, can't wait to see the thaw today and see how they look. And don't forget to feed the birds because if you feed the birds right now, they will set up this forage route and they will be all over those caterpillars early in the season. Uh, I am answering questions after the show at DougOster.com. You can find out all about my weekly online classes there, Thursdays at 5 o'clock. And... Hey, a couple of seats open up for my Croatia trip in May. Uh, that's going to go quick. So if you're interested, uh, get on DougOster.com. Remember, organic gardeners, you make our world brighter and safer with each seed you sow and every garden you grow. All right, there he goes, Doug Oster, getting ready for some meatless meals to celebrate the Lent season on the Coons Cooking Hour in moments on KDKA.